Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Dr. Eric Wargo, who joined me to talk about his research into the nature of precognition, specifically its connection to dreaming and the scientific principle of retrocausation, which posits that events in the future can produce effects in the present, and present happenings can have a similar influence in the past. He covers this all extensively in his 2018 book, Time Loops, and next year sees the release of Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self, which explores in more detail methods that could be used to interpret these glimpses of the future. His work encompasses physics, psychoanalysis, anthropology and esoteric thought, and challenges a lot of long-held assumptions about the nature of our reality and how it works. Fascinating stuff indeed. Enjoy! Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rick, for having me on. Oh, not at all. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Your background is as a cultural anthropologist. So what was it that got you interested in the ideas that you write about in your book, Time Loops? Yeah, it didn't really come directly from my anthropological training. I don't work as an anthropologist. I've, I've worked as a science writer for the last two decades now, um, writing, uh, doing health, health science writing and neuroscience writing mostly. Um, what got me interested in this? Um, that's a that's a great question. It's sort of a roundabout roundabout path, convoluted story. I I sort of date it to uh, two thousand and nine when I had a couple of UFO experiences, and that may seem unrelated, but UFOs when you sort of go down the rabbit hole of reading about UFOs after you've seen one, uh, you inevitably come to the work of uh, Jacques Vallée, the famous ufologist. And his writings uh, sort of draw connections between the UFO phenomenon and ESP, psychic phenomena. And while I had never had any um, skepticism necessarily about UFOs before I saw one, I was very, very skeptical about ESP. So it was sort of perplexing to me that this very smart scientist was taking ESP very seriously and psychic phenomena very seriously. And that kind of led me to do my due diligence in learning about parapsychology research, for one thing. And not long after that, the an eminent psychologist, an eminent psychological scientist named Daryl Bem at Cornell University published a very controversial paper, made a big splash because it was in one of the top uh, psychological science journals, the Journal of uh, Behavior and Social Psychology, I think. And it was essentially showing uh, precognitive influences on the behavior of participants in his studies. And it's uh, it's a really, you know, mind-bending paper, and it provoked a lot of scorn and rejection by people in the field of psychology. And I happened to be working as an editor for a psychological uh, for a psychological science uh, organization at the time, and my colleagues were just uh, infuriated that that what they saw as pseudoscience was being uh, published in a major journal. And so that prompted me to do even further uh, due diligence in reading about precognition and the evidence for it. And at the same time, I had always recorded my own dreams. I mean, for many years, I'd already been recording my dreams, keeping electronic dream journal and so on. And on a few occasions, I'd noticed what I would now call a precognitive dream. But at the time, it had just I had just ignored those things because they didn't fit into my worldview. 
Uh, well, now, you know, Daryl Bem's work and what I was reading about the evidence for, for precognition in laboratory studies and so on uh, really forced me to take the topic seriously. And uh, that sort of led me to essentially a decade-long now uh, adventure of studying precognition. And it led to my book uh, in 2018, Time Loops. Right, okay. So what was it that you were trying to get across in the book? What were the, what are the sort of the key themes in that work? Yeah, well, the number one theme is the reality of precognition and how that reality actually fits very well in a number of kind of recent trends in a number of different scientific fields, including physics, including quantum com computation and quantum information theory, and quantum biology, the emerging field of quantum biology. Um, the, the operative word is in those fields or at least in physics, would be retrocausation. The idea that uh, the sort of linear uh, sequence of cause and effect doesn't hold on the smallest scales in quantum systems. And, you know, you can have an effect that precedes a cause on the smallest levels of particles interacting and so on, and that there are certain situations where you can potentially scale that up and a quantum computer being one such situation. Now, simultaneous to this kind of emerging understanding, at least among some folks in physics, parallel to that, you have the field of quantum information theory and quantum computing, which is just recently, you know, if you read the headlines in the science news, you know, every month there's some new headline about how in a quantum computer, they're making, uh, they're reversing the causal order of computations, and translated into plain English, it kind of means that you could theoretically have an output before an input in a quantum computer. Well, guess what organ in the body is thought by many people to be a quantum computer? This has been an idea that's been around since the late 1980s, actually. Uh, the idea that, you know, there are some pretty spooky and amazing things about the brain that are highly suggestive of what quantum computers were theorized and are theorized to be able to do. And so there has been a small group of folks in various biological fields and neuroscience trying to prove that the brain is really a quantum computer. That's not just metaphorically a quantum computer, but that it really is. And there's, there's growing evidence for that. Um, so you have all these different scientific fields that seem to be converging on the, the idea that maybe the, neuro, the nervous system can actually respond to its future. Maybe an organism can actually respond to its uh, future experiences. And geez, that would make a huge amount of sense of, you know, this vast swath of human experience that currently is just rejected uh, by mainstream psychology, uh, you know, because it doesn't fit our enlightenment preconceptions. Uh, about, you know, cause always preceding effect and uh, the supposed non-existence of something like precognition. Um, it would make perfect sense of uh, very common uh, human experiences, such as precognitive dreams, precognitive visions and premonitions. It would also, I think, make a lot of sense of a lot of other psychic phenomena that are not ordinarily thought of as precognition. Um, there's a, a, an argument that is made within parapsychology by some people that things like telepathy, mediumship, clairvoyance or remote viewing, those kinds of skills 
may really be precognition in disguise. Now, this is an active debate in the field, but uh, there's it's often thought that you know you can't distinguish between what you may think is a telepathic link to your uh, brother across the country. You know, when you know you wake up and you have a dream that oh my brother. Uh, was in a car accident and uh, and then you call him on the phone and wow, it turns out he was in a car accident. Was that a telepathic link or was your, yeah, that may be how people naturally interpret that sort of thing, but you know, it could be that you were precognizing that phone call. And so, uh, so long story short, we've got a lot of different sort of findings and trends across a number of fields in science, they're pointing to the possible reality of, of precognition. And uh, it potentially explains a great deal, that it's not just some little trivial little, you know, occasional thing that, uh, that happens, you know, once in a blue moon to certain talented psychics. Uh, it may be a pervasive thing. Uh, and it could even be the basis for our cognition in some sense. So that's the argument that I develop in time loops. And the further argument I make is that we already have a roadmap for thinking about this. And that roadmap is the work of Sigmund Freud a century ago, over a century ago. Because Freud, while he did not personally believe in the possibility of precognition, he was adamantly opposed to that, he nevertheless theorized this vast realm of cognition that was nevertheless sort of invisible or, you know, that couldn't be seen and couldn't be uh, accounted for. And yet somehow it was operating in tandem with our conscious mind and it was it was shaping our behavior. It was giving us dreams. It was... Uh, making us have slips of the tongue and all these other meaningful kinds of uh, behaviors. Well, he thought that the unconscious was a, this reservoir of unresolved um, conflicts from our past and our childhood and so on. You, if you go back and, and, and re-examine a lot of his case studies and the uh, sort of the, the psychoanalytic tradition more generally, you immediately realize that, well, if you if you have this mentality that I do, that that we that we're really looking for precognition here, uh, everything he was describing as the unconscious could potentially uh, be described as our future consciousness impacting us in the past, or or our future thoughts impacting us now in the present, uh, sort of kind of retro causation uh, in our psyche. Uh, and so I, I, I developed that argument as well in sort of the second half of time loops. Right. Okay. Um, is it sort of that retro causation is uh, the mechanism that enables precognition? Yes. Yes. Right. Okay, cool. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to, it seems like these things up, up, operate indirectly because I know that I imagine quite a lot of people will have experience precognition in one form or another, be it through dreams or, or some other means. But it's, it's rare that it seems to be directly, like you rarely get a sort of a direct message. Do you think that with it operating on a subconscious level, or an unconscious level, that's how it's meant to work? Or is this something people aren't fully using? Right. No, I, I, the former. I think that, that this is one of the reasons why Freud's work is so compelling. There are a lot of reasons why precognition has to be an unconscious uh, phenomenon. And this, right. this is a very complex issue. And I don't think in the, in the span of, 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 of an hour or even you know, multiple hours, we'd be able to uh, get to the bottom of this. I, I address this in time loops, and this is actually a big topic in the book that I've I've finished writing and is coming out in a couple of months um, called Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. Uh, there's a whole section in there addressing these questions of why precognition is always indirect. And there are really important reasons for that, uh, multiple reasons. And 
Among them are the kinds of laws that govern that would govern the 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 transfer or, or the, the 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 travel of information or object or people backwards in time uh, in a universe that is what physicists call self-consistent. Um, that is to say, non-paradoxical. And we're talking about the, the grandfather paradox here, you know, that, that, that science fiction writers will be familiar with. Um, you, you know, unless you're going to sort of cheat by saying, well, that whenever you travel back in time, you generate a new timeline. And that's, that's what science fiction writers always fall back on because it's very hard to think about this stuff if you don't, you know, cheat, but you don't have to cheat. Um, and I argue in the new book and in time loops a little bit that, that actually the the rules that govern information transferring into the past predict that that information will always be distorted, misinterpreted, misunderstood, basically all the things that define what Freud called unconscious, okay? Uh, it's always going to be indirect because we have to act on that information in a way that fulfills uh, whatever outcome in the future that we're precognizing. So this accounts for um, the symbolic distortion seen in dreams, for instance, and why dreams are precognitive dreams are non are almost always non literal. Uh, it's actually the very rare precognitive dream that is sort of a video quality. Uh, uh, presentation of some future experience. But even then, in those cases, you don't know when or where that thing is going to happen. Um, and so it's very, you know, you can't use it to avoid the foreseen outcome. Um, and, you know, this is the, co the constant frustration with people who have precognitive dreams that, you know, they have these, these, uh, these experiences, but again, then they can't seem to use them to avert catastrophes. You know, some people, uh, and this is actually a minority of precognitive dreamers, but some precognitive dreamers, you know, seem to fixate on disasters like air crashes and, and deaths and so forth. And yet there's nothing they can do with that information um, uh, because they don't know where an event's going to happen. You know, even if they see it clearly in their mind's eye, you know, they don't have enough information to actually foreclose that outcome. Um, and this is an, this is essential <laughs> to the way precognition works. I mean, this is not, uh, it's, it's not a form of radar uh, detecting like some possibility in your future that you can, you can change. Uh, it's instead a symbolic, often distorted representation of something that is going to happen, um, uh, which may, in the case of things like disasters, it may actually prepare you. It may actually act as kind of a, a buffer or a uh, the meta, one of the metaphors I use in the new book is like a, a precognitive airbag uh, in a car that, that deploys a second before an impact. I mean, it has it, it just enhances your ability to deal with a crisis um, if on some unconscious level you're already prepared for aspects of that crisis. But it's not acting as a radar uh, detecting something that might or might not happen because that then creates a paradox. You know, you can't have a, a, a premonition of an event which you could then avert because then where would that, you know, where would that, how would that, how would that event have, you know, impacted you in the past? So this is, uh, this is one of the nuances of, of the topic that I, I delve into in the new book and that I find I'm, I find this incredibly fascinating, uh, uh, this aspect of, of precognition. I forget your question. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, that's a great answer. I'm, so is precognition more like a heads up rather than something to be acted on? In popular culture, that's often how precognition is represented. It's sort of a, a message that's meant to be acted upon. Right. No, I think that I think it's more like a heads up. And honestly, most often it operates completely unconsciously. We're not aware of it. I, I, I think basically uh, intuition Intuition is just precognition mm. by another name. I mean, uh, all of our intuitive faculties, our, you know, gut feelings, our be automatic behaviors that produce things like synchronicities, you know, synchronicity is just misrecognized precognition. 
Um, it's 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 a a reward or a you know amazing kind of impossible confluence of events that we have actually unconsciously orchestrated ourselves um, because because this you know precognitive uh, or sometimes called presentimental faculty is operative uh, below the level of conscious awareness at all times. And people who are particularly intuitive, people who are tend to act on their feelings and so on, these kinds of characteristics that are often uh, that psychics often display uh, or just intuitive people in general, they're going to, they're going to have lives that are full of synchronicity <laughs> because of that. And, uh, and what I'm doing in the new book is I'm teaching people to, to, to take that kind of mindset and take that kind of mentality uh, and apply it to their lives through uh, the, the business of precognitive dream work. Um, because when you start working with your dreams with, with this in mind, precognition in mind, and following certain pretty simple principles, um, it will just blow open your world uh, very quickly. You'll start to notice how that it's operating on a daily basis in your life. Um, and it's, it's a really mind blowing discovery and it, and it will change your worldview and it'll change your view of causation and, and, and everything else. Mm. So when you were writing the book time loops, did you have that title in your head or did that come to you whilst you were writing the book? <laughs> the, the phrase was in my head the whole time. Um, but it was my editor actually, my, or my, the, the, my, my friend who published the book, um, said, well, why don't you just call it time loops? And it's like, oh yeah, that's a great title. I, I hadn't, <laughs> uh, but I had been using that, that, that phrase in my head, uh, for, I think a couple of years on my blog, um, writing about these phenomena and it's a misleading, it's a, it's, I, I admit, and I admit early on in the book that it's a misleading title in the sense that we're not talking about time itself that is looping. Um, we're not talking about the, the dimension of time being bent. Uh, we're talking about, uh, really, we're talking about causal loops. Time is just a dimension. Uh, this, is, this was Einstein's great insight uh, that time is the fourth dimension. Uh, and it's really no different from the three dimensions of space, except we really have trouble uh, conceiving of it. And partly it's because there is this tendency for causes to only precede effects, uh, in that time dimension. You know, you can go backwards in space, but it's very hard to go backwards in time, but it's not impossible. And physicists now have various, uh, theoretical ways that time can be traversed in both directions. Uh, and technologically, we will probably get there uh, in sooner than, than you may imagine. Um, and likewise, the fact that we only experience things or seem to experience things in a single direction may be A, partly illusory, uh, and B, kind of more like a tendency that is difficult to, but not impossible to reverse. Like more, it may be more analogous to uh, being on the on a steep mountain slope where it's you know really tough to go one direction, but really easy to go the other direction. And that may be kind of what entropy is, uh, that it's this tendency, but it's not a, an unviable, unviolable tendency. Okay, so I mean, I think a standard model physics, I believe that it thinks that we're at the leading edge of time so that the future doesn't exist yet which i'm not sure about um but it's with... actually not the leading model in physics um all right okay i'm i'm sorry i stand correct well that's well lay physics yeah i mean you know, yeah, okay. a lay person's <laughs> understanding of physics yeah that's how we think of of the future as something that doesn't exist yet uh and the past is something that that is you know set in stone somehow um the ever since Einstein and and really it was his teacher uh, Hermann Minkowski, his math teacher, who sort of put this all together. Everything that Einstein was saying, and he, I think, it was the one who coined the term space-time continuum. Um, and 
he ever since Minkowski sort of formulated this space-time continuum, and since especially since uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity uh, theorized you know gravity as the curvature of the three dimensions of space into the fourth dimension of time. Sorry, uh, we have the standard model in physics has been that of a block universe. And that is to say, uh, think of the universe as this four-dimensional block uh, that where the future already exists, it is just as solid as the past. And we are, our consciousness is sort of moving from one, one end to the other or sort of scrolling across this, uh, this block. <clears throat> but whatever we experience at a given time is really just a cross-section of a four-dimensional reality. Uh, and so, for instance, you know, particles are really lines. They're world lines uh, sort of squiggling, you know, from one end of the block to the other. Uh, and objects like us made of particles are like, we're like worms. We're like these, these worms sort of snaking through the block for a certain length of time, the duration of our life. And so at any given moment, the sort of three-dimensional me that I feel and see sitting here at my desk is really just a cross-section of a four-dimensional worm uh, that's extending uh, across time. Um, so, yeah, so in physics, that's actually a standard, uh, standard view. Now, th there's a lot of trouble in physics trying to reconcile uh, the Einsteinian uh, picture uh, with the picture that we get from quantum mechanics. Now, that's, you know, that is certainly an active area of debate and so on. But I think you'd find most physicists basically adhere to the block universe model. Right. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm definitely a... Um, layperson when it comes to physics. <laughs> Thank you for explaining that. <laughs> I, I know in the book as well, you, the, the, the concept of free will is challenged. And I'm interested in how, how that works. Um, but a person still has a sense of agency. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone asks about that. And it's uh, the, a lot. A lot of the my new book is addressing those questions that I get asked all the time about this. Um, but <laughs> so I'm going to make another shameless pitch for my new book because people who want answers to that will find will find them uh, in the new book. But uh, there's okay. I have, I have multiple answers uh, to this question about free will. First of all, you know what do we mean by when we talk about free will? I mean we can kind of imagine. We have mental models and mental pictures of what we mean by free will and sort of this, this sense that, that uh, somehow our consciousness is an agent and, and that we can make choices and, uh, and so on. Well, sure. I mean, we're, that's, but that can be part of the block universe. You know, the point is from there, there's, there's a vantage point, you know, 10 seconds from now where your free choice to do X, you know, to turn your car right instead of turning your car left is already set in stone and can't be changed. Um, if it's a block universe, then, you know, your, you know, freely willed action at time point a, uh, there's always a point of view upon it that sees it as in the past, something that already happened. So, you know, there. So one answer would be to say, well, you know, maybe philosophically we should just fast forward to that point and realize that free will is is kind of an illusion in in that sense. We may feel in the moment like we have free will, but uh, uh, the the if you reran the universe again and played it from the start, you know, if it was a big film or something, you would always turn left. You would all there would never be a. Uh, uh, you know, a different outcome at any given uh, time point. Um, and this, interestingly, is seems to be what um, what Nietzsche meant by the eternal recurrence. Um, you know, he had sort of a, an epiphany about this, and and a friend of mine is writing a really brilliant book about 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 uh, Nietzsche and and the block universe right now. So I won't give too many spoilers, but but there's um, you know, there's a lot of precedent for this, not only in, uh, in, in, in Western philosophy, you'll have 
a harder time finding people uh, arguing for that. But go to the East. Um, Zen, for instance, that's kind of my tradition. It uh, doesn't make a big deal about free will. We're not big fans of free will because what does that mean? Um, you know, if you're trying to execute uh, like a skill, for instance, like a martial art or whatever, you know, in the moment, you don't want a consciousness of your own free will. You want to do the most effective thing in that moment. And, you know, whenever you're executing a, a highly trained skill, it always feels like you're part of a big machine. You're just doing uh, what needs to be done and, and it's effective and it's very liberating. Um, and that's kind of the feeling of, of being a kind of a Zen enlightened person in the world is that, is that you're not worried about your freedom. That's the last thing you're worried about. You're just doing, and it's empowering and liberating. Uh, but you know, there's no question of freedom versus unfreedom. Um, so it's kind of, this free will thing is kind of a Western hang up. It's not a universal human uh need and i would say that it's kind of as much a it's it's kind of a bit of cultural baggage um that we really don't need uh and if we set it aside you know it's like give up your idea of free will well you know you still wake up in the morning you still need to make you know put on the coffee you know get dressed put on your pants it's not it doesn't really change anything to say oh there's no free will versus saying there's free will uh it's just kind of uh, it's something we like versus don't like, but, but, you know, it doesn't really change, change reality. You know, your, our experience of going through daily life is going to be pretty much the same, whichever we adhere to, you know, I'm not a big free will believer, but I, I feel very free and empowered in my life and, and it doesn't bother me. So, um, uh, I guess that's that's a short answer, but but I have multiple chapters addressing different different aspects of this of this question uh, in the new book. So hopefully, uh, readers will will come away satisfied. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask actually, you answered that question for me because I was going to talk to you about other sort of non-Western cultures and and their ideas on these subjects. I mean, when you were writing and researching the book apart from Zen Buddhism, I imagine there must be plenty of cultures that have an understanding of these subjects in a, in a similar fashion to what you, how you describe them in the book. Yeah. I have not, you know, oddly enough, I, I have not done exhaustive research on, on beliefs about time in across, you know, other cultures than, than European American cultures. I mean, there are plenty of examples uh, they're commonly cited of cultures that have a, some sort of circular conception of time. Uh, and I think it, it, it seems almost like pretty much every culture has some sort of circular notion of time. But, you know, honestly, most cultures, at least the ones that we know a lot about, seem to have multiple models of time sort of going on uh, simultaneously. So I think it's it's wrong to kind of reduce, you know, to say, oh, the, you know, those people believe time is a, is a, is a circle. Well, you know, for some, for, for some purposes and, and so forth, they may, they may have a cyclical conception of time, but most, most cultures also do have some sort of linear conception of time too. So it's, it's not as, as simple as Western versus non-Western. I think uh, the main thing is that in official Western culture, um, since the enlightenment, especially uh, we've kind of banished these, other models of time, these other images of how time works. Um, you know, for instance, I think the, the Greeks had like Kronos and Kairos, you know, one is sort of a more linear version. One is a more, uh, not necessarily circular, but more almost a synchronistic view of time or opportune moments and so forth. Um, uh, I, I suspect that what we think of as the Western linear view of time is basically just the official Western linear view of time that has been promoted in scientific uh, discourse and in academic discourse uh, for the last three centuries or so. But um, uh, I think uh, I think even in the West, uh, lay people <laughs> have 
uh, multiple ideas about time going on. I think it's you. You could find a lot of people who who have a, a sense of time as as maybe something more circular or something more uh, non-linear in some way. Uh, you know, and among people who have not been scientifically educated, or some might say scientifically indoctrinated, <laughs> you uh, you you wouldn't have much. Uh, knee-jerk rejection of the idea that people can be precognitive and that future, you know, events and experiences might impact us in the present. Um, that's an idea that I think most people in almost all cultures of the world would be very comfortable with. It's, it's, it's our, our sort of official uh, scientifically educated culture uh, that has rejected that for the last couple centuries. And that's, and I have to, I hasten to say, I'm not being anti-science here. I'm, I'm, I'm all about science, but, but, you know, paradigms do need to shift. And I think we're to a point where we're ready for a kind of big paradigm shift or set of paradigm shifts around this. Hmm. I mean, there's a saying that science progresses one funeral at a time. So yeah. is this a, yeah, I mean, in a good, in a good true. way, is this a funeral? <laughs> Yeah, well, that saying is be, is very literal about funerals. I mean, <laughs> it's you know, it's it tends to be the old uh, the old fogies who kind of cling to to outmoded views. Uh, I, I don't I don't know if if it's that if that's going to be what changes it. Um, I'm encouraged that we seem to be in a renaissance right now. Uh, even just setting precognition aside, we're sort of in a renaissance about so-called paranormal phenomena uh, more generally because there's growing legitimacy for a lot of paranormal topics, uh, which is encouraging um, in the sense that they're no longer being seen as just worthy of ridicule. Um, you were seeing this around the UFO phenomenon, for instance, uh, the, uh, you know, recent, you know, last few years, there's, you know, they've sort of entered mainstream journalism, uh, in a way that they're not being just simply made fun of, uh, and more and more eminent people, uh, celebrities, but even scientists are talking seriously about these topics. Uh, and you even have academic scholars who are writing, taking these kinds of experiences very, very seriously. People like my friend uh, Jeff Kripal at Rice University, for instance. Um, so I think we're, you know, that's part of this larger paradigm shift. And then that is not to say that all these phenomena are equally real or that people's interpretations of these phenomena are correct. But uh, we're, I think, possibly pushing those 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 boundaries of of pseudo skepticism uh, that have kind of kept these topics um, isolated and sort of starved of oxygen for so long. I mean, James Randi. I mean, if you want to talk about a funeral, James Randi recently passed, um, and you know, people have very uh, fierce feelings about Randi either way. Um, yeah, uh, but you know, he represented. Uh, a kind of um, a degree of hostility toward paranormal phenomena and toward things like ESP and so on. Uh, so, you know, the, uh, but, but that, uh, that is not to say that there aren't fierce pseudoskeptics uh, among the younger generation <laughs> of the skeptical movement too. So uh, I'm not saying that that will create a change, but, uh, but I, I think that there's, there's more, uh, I think, increased acceptance that uh, the world may not be completely as uh, we've been led to believe by, uh, by mainstream academic science and so on. Hmm. Earlier in the interview, you talked about how writing this book kind of started a little bit with your own experiences of seeing ufos and i'm interested in the work that you've done writing the time loops and your new book do do you think you have more of an insight into some of that phenomenon i mean i know it's a really broad phenomenon but i'm thinking of things like missing time for example that some people report i mean do these phenomena sort of fit within the the model that you're describing in your books 
they don't UFOs do not fit within my model per se, but I think when we, it, it, I think any ufologist worth their salt right now recognizes that you cannot understand this purely as a physical phenomenon in the sense that it's interacting somehow with consciousness. And now, now that can be in a very banal way that everything physical interacts with consciousness because we interact with it. But uh, particularly when you're talking about very remarkable, unusual, amazing phenomena, our consciousness is going to react uh, even more strongly, uh, even just in the sense that those kinds of experiences, like uh, an encounter with an object in the sky, is something that you would be more likely to have had a precognitive dream about. It may have nothing to do with that object in the sky. It may just be your own innate precognition, but those kinds of experiences are very naturally going to come sort of enveloped in this, uh, this, I don't know, bubble of what people often call synchronicities because of that precognitive engagement. And so I think it's very important to under, in order to understand UFOs and a lot of other paranormal phenomena, we need to get clear about the role of precognition in cognition. Um, because when you sort of bracket out some of the effects that I think people, because people don't have a concept of precognition by and large, they're going to attribute their synchronicities in the context of UFO encounters, for instance, they're going to attribute those synchronicities to the UFO rather than to their own brains. And what I want to do is get people to, first of all, see the scope of this faculty, for lack of a better word, that we have and that we bring to our engagement with the world. And once we have that broadened conception of our own consciousness, um, how does that change the this other phenomenon we're trying to study, like UFOs, for instance, you know, how does it, if we, you know, if it turns out that, that we can explain some aspects of the phenomenon, like those synchronistic aspects of the phenomenon, simply by virtue of our own normal precognitive brains, uh, that may help us better understand what the UFO is. So in that sense, yes, I think that this is a this is an important step toward understanding a lot of paranormal phenomena. But it doesn't. I don't subsume UFOs within the context of precognition. I don't think that. I think there's something there that's uh, that's you know that's not. This is not just a projection of our own minds. I don't. I don't think that at least. Uh, so in that sense, um, it's not completely encompassed by my my uh, hypotheses about precognition right okay so um your new book is precognitive dreamworks and the long self so does this sort of pick up from the time loops book yeah it's i wrote it i set out to write it originally because every time i talked about time in time loops i talk a bit about dreams but I was getting so I was getting barraged by questions about dreams and people started sending me their dreams uh, by email. And I, I, uh, I realized there's a need for a book that is that sort of sets aside all the kind of highfalutin theoretical stuff, um, you know, that kind of sets aside the physics and all that and just addresses dreams uh, and gives people guidance in how to think about precognitive dreams and how to interpret precognitive dreams. And this is something that I've been basically doing for the last decade. And I realized, okay, I'm the person to write this book. So uh, the first, so if you've read time loops, the first couple chapters of the new book will kind of be familiar stuff because it's stuff that I, I already covered in time loops, but uh, in a much more um, kind of simple and readable and personal way. I mean, this book is also a lot more personal than time loops and the time loops. I didn't want to talk about my own, precognitive dreams. I wanted to, to only use sources and anything that was already published that people could sort of draw their own conclusions. I didn't want it to be a sort of, a, you know, here are some dreams I had and blah, blah, blah. This book is a lot more personal, not only my own experiences, but experiences of a number of, of uh, people who have sent me their precognitive dream experiences, including a couple of, of real 
precogs who I've now been working and collaborating with uh, actively. Um, there's some just amazing stories in this book. Uh, you know, dream precognition it goes way beyond this. I think people have this conception that, you know, based on their own experience, that you know it's this once in a lifetime thing where you have this dream and a couple of days later you see the thing you dreamed about or 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 whatever. But uh, no, I the argument in this book is that uh, we're dreaming precognitively every night that possibly all our dreams are precognitive and we just don't see it. And uh, I, I give a lot of principles for how it works uh, based on my experience and my collaboration with other precognitive dream workers uh, and a lot of, uh, of advice for how to capture these things, how to detect when a dream is precognitive, how to uh, decode uh, or not decode, but to use free association, Freudian free association, to identify the the uh, kind of symbolism in the dream, and which will help you then identify uh, a real event that the dream is referring to. Because most precognition, most precognitive dreams, for reasons we talked about earlier, are indirect and associative and and symbolic. Uh, and so once you sort of do this, and you have the epiphany that oh my god, I mean I'm precognitively dreaming, you know all the time and you know you'll probably detect multiple precognitive dreams in a week for instance uh, when you start keeping a dream diary every day and and following the the methods i'm proposing um it's just it's a transformative i mean it really transforms your worldview and uh basically this book is is trying to sort of get people to be citizen scientists about this topic of precognitive dreaming it's uh it's it's very sad to read um kind of mainstream dream science and articles in in science magazines like new scientists and stuff about dreams you know they'll come out with a, a new article every every year about oh why we really dream that's now been discovered and it's some new uh theory that doesn't you know really isn't very exciting and and isn't very persuasive ultimately uh and those people who are usually psychologists uh, are you know so incredibly hostile to the this popular idea uh, that dreams can foretell the future? They're just so rejecting of that idea. But when you start to see in your own life uh, that no, this is not you can't explain this away in the usual skeptic fashion by saying oh it's the law of large numbers or or whatever. It's it's that becomes ridiculous. And so there's, I think get, having a lot of people out there with fat dream journals, you know, able to just, you know, shove them in the skeptic's faces, basically, I don't mean to sound hostile, but, but, you know, say, say look, you've got to take this seriously. I think ultimately, I would like to help change the conversation around uh, precognitive dreaming. And I think the more people who, who become precognitive dream workers, ultimately, it's going to lead to real scientists with the funding uh, doing the necessary science to, to show, yeah, this is real. And I think when that happens, I think by the time that happens, uh, there will be enough uh, enough work in other uh, parallel fields of science, like physics and quantum computing and quantum biology especially, that will make the idea of retrocausation in living systems and in the nervous system and so forth seem a lot less radical. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm confident, somewhat confident that, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, uh, the climate will be very different around this stuff. I, I hope so anyway. Mm, yeah, me too. I mean, I was going to ask if you feel like your work is, uh, is recognized as much as it should be, because I've, I've known about your work for a little while. I've, I've heard you being interviewed on other podcasts, but I mean, do you feel, was there... From mainstream science and academia, was there sort of a resistance to your ideas? No, it was ignored. Uh, not, but but I, I I expected that. I mean, I was you know this was not the ideas and time loops are not ready for prime time yet, and hmm. I didn't expect to get uh, you know. Uh, attention by, you know, NPR or anything like that. Um, uh, it's still, you know, this is still a, a 
you know, I don't want to say fringe, but it's a it's a small uh, a small idea that's growing. Uh, and uh, but I've gotten honestly zero. Um, I don't know. Uh, negative reaction or negative response. Uh, and, you know, a, a number of, of physicists uh, have read my book or people with physics backgrounds and, and, and find it very exciting. Um, partly because I'm taking, you know, I'm really not, I'm, I'm trying to, I tried to make sure not to do the sort of typical new age thing of just sort of <laughs> hand wave about, about quantum physics and stuff. I mean, I spent a couple of years immersed in, in that material. And, and so what I'm saying in the book is not, is not, uh, just pulling it out of my own, you know, imagination. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's, I think that book is not quite ready for prime time, but, uh, and another reason it's not ready for, for prime time is I talk so much about Freud because Freud is just as anathema to, scientific psychologists as parapsychology is. I mean, that's the other, that's the other thing scientific psychologists hate is anything to do with, with Freud or psychoanalysis um, because the problems having to do with testability and, and replicability. I mean, he, the, the Freud's uh, claims or a lot of them are things that that's, are hard to test. But the reason is, is he's talking about meaning. Uh, meaning is not something you can capture in science's nets. And that's why Freud was so important. He was sort of trying to straddle. He was being interdisciplinary, essentially. He was straddling the sciences, and the scientific understanding at the turn of the century about the brain and so on, and trying to bring that in, into contact with uh, interpretive hermeneutic methods drawn from you know, literary criticism and philosophy and so on. Uh, and you, that's essential. That's what it takes, I think, to understand a meaning-centered phenomenon like dreams. I mean, whether you're talking precognition or not, you know, to understand dreaming, you need to, you need all those tools. You need to draw on neuroscience and psychology, and you also have to draw on the humanities. And so that's what he was doing. And I think we need to get back to that spirit. Okay. So I'm interested, what is it about Freudian psychology that fits better than Jungian psychology, for example? Right. Uh, yeah, this is another topic I address uh, a, a, a bit in time loops and a, a lot in the, in the new book. Um, people who come to this subject are often coming via a Jungian, the Jungian tradition, because uh, Jung did a great thing, which was he made it legitimate for because he was interested in these kinds of phenomena. OK, and he was open about that. Freud was interested in them too, but he was not open about it. That was the difference between them. Uh, Freud was later, late in his career, he became open about, he, he was very cautious because he didn't want to be reject his theory to be rejected uh, by the skeptics. So, you know, he had good reasons for being cautious, but, but Jung was a more of a mystic, more of a, you know, that was, it was, it was, became part of his, his whole thing that there's this dimension um, that, she, that, which he attributed to the collective unconscious, uh, and so he made it legitimate for people to talk about what we would now call paranormal phenomena. Um, and in, in a way that didn't invite uh, the kind of knee-jerk um, ridicule of scientists. I mean, scientists just look at, you know, Jungian psychology as well. That's just those crazy, you know, unions, whatever it's, it's, you know, people talking about their own individuation and, and archetypes and whatever, uh, they sort of leave them alone. So you have this big body of writing, uh, full of what I consider precognitive dreams, but they're sort of couched as synchronicity and it's all, it's all about individuation and stuff like that. So it's, it sort of has this veneer of innocence. Um, and so it gets ignored by, by the, the, the skeptics. Um, so that was a great service of, of Jung to do that. However, um, there are a lot of reasons that that idiom of synchronicity that is so popular, <clears throat> uh, while on one hand it's a nice label for kind of meaningful coincidences and so on, uh, it also kind of keeps people from scrutinizing these kinds of events uh, 
and figuring out how they work. Um, if you don't have a concept, and the, and the reason for that is Jung was writing before there was really a concept of retrocausation in physics. I mean, he was inspired by quantum physics, um, but he but they weren't really talking about retrocausation then. So he thought, well, there's no way these kind of events can be causal at all. So they are somehow timeless and they, they're outside the realm of causality. But when you think of them that way, uh, you're kind of... Um, you're not doing the hard work of figuring out how, how they could actually operate. And when you have a concept of retrocausation and a concept of precognition uh, as a cognitive, you know, sort of a brain-based phenomenon, um, it makes much more sense of these kinds of experiences and has the added benefit that you can work with these experiences much more actively and directly and uh, learn how to um, have them on a daily basis. I mean, you're not just depending on the universe to sort of send you this thumbs up in the, in the, in the form of a synchronicity. That's how most people tend to think about synchronicities. It's like the universe winking at me or God winking or whatever, because I'm sort of on the right track in my spiritual progression. Um, mm. If you instead think of this as your own precognitive brain orchestrating amazing discoveries in your life, and you learn how to tap into that regularly on a nightly basis uh, and daily basis. I mean, it's not just in dreams that we can do this. Uh, it's just, it just op it blasts open the doors. I mean, I've got some stories um, in the new book about dream workers who, you know, worked for years with kind of a Jungian uh, model, but when they, when, they boom when they realized this was precognition in, in action, it just exploded their, 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 I mean, they're it just totally transformed their lives and their ability to, um, to create essentially miracles in their lives by engaging in this kind of the robust precognitive dream work. So I think Jung was kind of a halfway house uh, to this kind of uh, new sensibility about precognition and precognitive dream work. Uh, and another reason I prefer the, the, the work of Freud to Jung is that when you start doing precognitive dream work, it really forces you to pay attention to the kind of the messy minutiae of your life, the kind of stuff that, that a lot of people find kind of icky because they don't like thinking about their, their lives in this kind of fine grained detail. But, it's that fine grained detail uh, of your your lives of your life and your your thoughts that this the sort of stuff that that in Freudian is sort of the meat of Freudian psychoanalysis, and that Jung didn't like. It did, Jung didn't like to talk about his patients' lives or their uh, or their thoughts. Really, he sort of wanted just to reduce everything to archetypes, um, and if you sort of set aside these kind of templates or archetypes and really focus on the details of life, on the details of your life, um, you realize that that stuff, those details that don't fit into the sort of cookie cutter archetype, archetypal mold, those are what your precognition is focusing on. And if you home in on, on those, those messy details, um, the kinds of things that are hard to divulge to other people, <laughs> you know, um, uh, outside of a therapeutic setting. Those are the things that are, that your precognition is working with. And, you know, it, it deals with very basic, um, uh, aspects of our, our thought, uh, you know, things like existential issues, um, uh, and, and sort of troubling and not uh, Freud, you know, Freud is ridiculed often for reducing everything to sex. And that's not what I mean by returning to Freud. I don't, I, you know, I, that, that, you know, even, even Freudian psychoanalysts anymore, I don't think, you know, agree with that, you know, reductive, oh, it's all about sex that, that Freud is, 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 is ridiculed for. And that's not what I mean. Um, but I'm, I mean, this notion, A, that there is an unconscious that, operates in all these ways through dreams and symptoms and, and slips of the tongue and so on and so on. But also that, uh, that the, the, the details, the details of your life as a, as a, your biography, the details of your bi biography are super important. Everything, something that may seem completely 
uh, unimportant. Um, uh, you know, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example. Something that may seem totally trivial and unimportant may turn out to be super important in your, in your, in your Tesseract brains, <laughs> associative 4D <laughs> associative web. <laughs> uh, and so that's, uh, that's, I get, I like to get up on that Freudian soapbox because, because I just think a return to Freud's sensibility about the mind and about our lives is super, super enriching, uh, especially when we sort of flip him on, on his head and, and, and say, you know, what he was describing really was precognition. He didn't know it, but that's what he was describing. Hmm. What's the long self mentioned in the title of your second book? Uh, yeah, that's the, that's, well, that's what I'm talking about. I'm, it's thinking of our lives as sort of a four dimensional, uh, thing, uh, that, you know, our brains, uh, the, the metaphor I use is a tesseract. That's a, that's something from science Mm. fiction is sort of a, a four dimensional doorway. Uh, I think the brain is that, um, it's a, it's a doorway through our lives and, what you realize when you do precognitive dream work is that your future, you know, your future life, in fact, potentially up until your death is already present in your brain right now. It's encoded symbolically. So accessing it is a challenge and it's not, it's not completely accurate and it's not complete, but your, your future life is already inside your head. And this is a kind of an epiphany that you will have ultimately if you do this enough and you have enough precognitive dreams in your, your notebook and you start thinking about them. Um, you realize that you know, there are a number of sort of mind-blowing epiphanies you have, this being one of them. Another sort of equivalent one is that your thoughts right now, especially if you're having a, an emotionally salient experience, um, say, you know, a surprising encounter or a, or a, or a, uh, an encounter with an old friend or a UFO sighting or something that's that, that makes an impact on you, that your thoughts at that moment are influencing your past. And not just your past last night when you had a, may have had a dream about it. It might have been your past decades ago because what you see with precognitive dream work is that often precognitive dreams span decades of a person's life. I've got lots of examples of it in the new book. I've got some examples too in time loops. Um, So that's a mind-blowing thought that your thoughts right now are influencing your past. Um, It's, it's really, it's, it's a, so the long self is this new view of our lives as not just, you know, who we are at this moment, just thinking of, of who you are at this moment as kind of this big four-dimensional worm <laughs> having amazing experiences over the span of decades, you know, ideally seven or eight decades, you know, hopefully, all refracted through a moment of consciousness uh, and that our brains have access to our whole lives. Um, but again, in a symbolic, uh, indirect way. So that's what the long self is. Mm, wow. Um, yeah, I really need to start a dream journal, I think. <laughs> yes, you need to start a dream journal. That's like on the, that's the, that's what I end time loops with is, you know, if you take nothing away from this book, keep a dream journal um, because that's the, that will open you to a new world, honestly. <clears throat> Excellent. Well, Eric, this has been a really wonderful chat. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. If people want to find out more about you and your work and your books, how best do they do that? Yeah, well, I have a blog called The Night Shirt. So it's just one word, thenightshirt.com. And my books are available. uh, The new book is available for for pre-order right now. Uh, It's coming out from Inner Traditions early in the new year, I think the publication official publication date is in early March, but I, they told me it's actually going to be available about a month earlier than that. So in about two months, it'll be available. Uh, and time loops similarly is uh, available wherever online books are sold. Also, I'm on Twitter. Um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter and my handle is at 
the nightshirt. Excellent. Well, I'll, I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Thank you very much. It was great to have the opportunity to talk with Eric on the podcast. I have to admit, it was a little intimidating to talk with someone whose work deals with some really complex ideas that I'm not completely au fait with. So I hope that I did a decent job interviewing him. When he was talking about how in the block universe a person could be considered almost as a snake or worm-like entity, tracing a path through existence, it did make me think of my conversation about the dream time with Munya Andrews a little while ago. Time is such a fundamental part of human experience, and it's interesting to compare the scientific research of Eric's work alongside these ancient spiritual philosophies and cosmologies. I heartily recommend getting a hold of the Time Loops book if you enjoyed our conversation. That's all for now. As ever, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. Also, sharing it on social media and following the show on Twitter really help it to grow and find new listeners. You can find some of the sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod, and on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. I appreciate times are tough right now, but any support that you can offer will play a big part in keeping some of the sphere going. It will always be free to listen to, though. If you'd like to get in touch with me at Sphere HQ, with ideas for future episodes, or guests, or your own unusual experiences, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, which will be episode 50, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.